Hey folks, I want to do Tuesday of Holy Week, the week Jesus died. I call it Temple Tuesday because that's where Jesus spent much of the day. This day, Jesus spoke a lot. We get more words from Jesus, more of those red letters on Tuesday than on any other day of his life. So you've been tracking this. You remember, this is a political story. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, in essence, on a suicide mission to destroy his nation's uh, political religious establishment known as the temple. The temple, if you'll imagine, it was like the White House and the Capitol building and the National Cathedral just all wrapped up into one giant place. It was their epicenter of culture, religion, and politics and things. It, it become this giant hairball of a bureaucracy that's just teeming with power struggles and profit motives and shady networks and religious political groups jockeying for power while the mainstream Jews of the country are just struggling to get by. Completely unlike anything that we know today, right? Jesus comes to destroy it. He's been predicting this. Yesterday he cast judgment on it, and today he comes back. And you would think that today is the day that Jesus dies if you're following the story, because like after yesterday he's toast. And it would be, but the crowds. There are too many grassroots supporters, and if they kill Jesus, there's going to be riots, and people are going to end up dead, and the elites are going to be held responsible by Pilate, because if there's anything that the Romans won't put up with, it's civil unrest. This is the Pax Romana. Uh, Romana. Pilate has come down from Caesarea to Jerusalem just to watch over Jerusalem this week. So there's a lot of squabbling, but everybody knows it can't break out in a riot or everybody's busted. So instead, they attack him with debates, which they love to do anyways. This was part of their culture. This political establishment is a bickering institution, and so they're always in debates and stalemate, completely unlike anything we know today. So the elite can't stand him. He's a Galilean. He's not attractive. His war horse is a donkey. His followers are poor. And then he comes in and he does what he did yesterday and completely disrespects this place in the, the height of all of its visitation and, uh, and traffic. So they're condescending to him. They actually unite against him from both sides of the aisle because there's one thing they agree on. It's get this idiot out of here and let us get back to our sophisticated debates. And they pound him with questions. Now, the first thing that they did was they asked him the big question. They go straight for the heart. They go straight for the throat. They, they, I guess you can't go for the heart and the throat at the same time, but they go straight for Jesus' character and his identity. It's about his healings and his miracles and the whole thing that he's doing. It's like, who are you? That's the question. It's, side note, I know many people are like, miracles, please. Actually, that's a great debate, but it's an aside from this story. And what I mean by this uh, is this. This is a Western Enlightenment debate that didn't even dawn on anyone in this story. So nobody in this story in the first century debated whether miracles could happen or not. That's a great discussion, but it wasn't one that they were having. They all unanimously agreed that miracles could happen. So to hear this story and not get sidetracked, you have to realize everybody in the ancient world agreed miracles happened. The question is... Who's behind your miracles? Like, where are you getting the power from? So the point in the story of the miracles is to show that you had special favor from the supernatural world because it was a sign in their culture that somehow the gods are with you. And the story goes, they recognize this guy is doing this stuff, and it can only be of one of two places. So in their culture, you're either a man of God or you're a man of Satan. You may be a charlatan who's just fooling people, or you may actually be a diviner of Satan. They ask him this big question, where are you getting your authority from? They say, like, is your power from God, or is it from men? 
Now, this is actually a great question to approach him with because they're smart. They got a lot of leverage. They, they, they know that the crowd knows that he's doing things or believes that he's doing things, and they can only convince the crowd maybe that he's an agent of the devil. So they're not going to convince the crowd that he's not doing them, but they want the crowd to start believing that he's been tricking them the whole time. So they accuse him by saying in front of these people, whose authority are you getting uh, to do these things? Are you just trying to gain popularity with a crowd? You're just doing these things for yourself and your agenda. That would mean that you're empowered by Satan. Now, remember that the crowds are like animals, right? This is like a big moment in the reach for the control of the crowd because obviously you're not going to get the crowd to doubt Jesus is special, but if you get them to believe that he's from Satan, this whole uproar is going to take care of itself. But Jesus responds with a question. He doesn't back off. He actually raises the bar. He responds with a really volatile question. Because I mean, like Jesus, what's he going to say to that? Whose authority are you getting this from? So instead he asked them a question. He says, hey, you remember this guy, John the Baptist? Now this was a lightning rod for them. These grassroots crowds that loved Jesus loved John the Baptist. Remember, John's just been killed by Herod Antipas, and some of these guys are Herodians. They're Herod sympathizers who would have either approved of or maybe even helped John be captured and executed. So some of these guys were probably the same ones that went out to see John the Baptist outside of Jerusalem when he was baptizing, and John had yelled some religious slurs at them and called them snakes. So just saying the name of John the Baptist in front of the crowd and these religious people were very insightful, no matter how you spell insightful. Jesus says, yeah, John the Baptist, that guy, he's my cousin. He baptized me, wink, wink. Whose authority was he working under? Was this guy here, the one that all these people behind me love, was he a man of God? And you can just almost feel them muttering explicatives under their breath because they knew Jesus had trapped them. They can't say yes, that he's a man of God, and they can't say no because of the crowds. And now Jesus has leverage of the crowd once more. It's like he won back control of the crowd. And, and they say, well, we don't know whose authority he had. We're not going to answer that question. And Jesus is like, hmm, strange. You ask about me? I don't know either. Now, after the John the Baptist question, you would think Jesus would be like, near miss. Like, I'll, I'm going to drop the mic and walk away at this point, right? Because he got them that time. But no, Jesus keeps pushing back. Jesus is like, so you want to talk about authority? Let me ask you about authority. And he completely raises the bar to unnecessary levels. He keeps the spotlight on the question of who he is. You would think he's like, take your win and walk away. But no, he challenges them even more. He challenges everybody, surprising the crowd even. He says, hey guys, you guys have been talking about a new king. You've been waiting on this new Messiah, right? You call him the son of David? Now, do you really think he's the son of David? Now, think about this name, okay? In this, the name, Son of David, it's the expectation that their Messiah, their political savior that they're going to have one day, is going to sort of recreate the David years, like the golden age of when their country was on top. We're going to get the David days back again. We're going to make Israel great again. And the king is going to rule from Jerusalem here, and the, the Romans are going to be defeated. We're going to basically pick back up where Solomon and David's family left off, like the train got off the tracks back in the 1950s, and we're going to go back to the glory days now. See, the, the guys were just like waiting for this kingdom to recreate the David moment. And Jesus pushes and says, why do you guys keep saying that the Messiah is the son of David, right? 
Like your expectations are way too low. Like that's all you want to do is recreate yesteryear. He quotes a verse from the Psalms in which David had said in the Psalms, Yahweh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And Jesus pulls out that verse and he says, hey, you know, this verse shows that David was actually expecting something better than himself and his kingdom. And you guys are merely trying to hold on to the past. Why would you call the Messiah the son of David? Sounds like to me, we should be expecting something way better, way more grandiose, way more progressive and forward thinking and better than that old kingdom, right? The kingdom that we're going to build here isn't a return to the good old days. It's the best days yet to come, and they're here. Now, remember, Jesus hasn't publicly said that he's the Messiah, and we don't know when he realized it, but the crowds, some of them have been calling him the son of David, and it's like he heard this, he took their belief in him, and he realized those things about how he's going to die as the suffering servant, Messiah leader of this lowerarchy, and he's embracing it. And now he has supercharged the conversation, and he's put even more on the crowd and religious leaders. Because he's like, if you really think I'm the Messiah, you're going to have to do way better than this whole son of David tag. Now, think about for his supporters. This is great rhetoric. They're like, oh, this guy. Like, his campaign promises are way higher than we've ever heard. He's not just going to make the economy better. It's going to be, like, better than the David years better. Whoa. You know, and so it polarizes the crowds and the religious elites even more. Okay, so first they discuss the big question, like, who is he? The, the identity of Jesus. And there's no resolution. It's just polarization, just elevating the tension, right? The second thing after this that Jesus does is he begins to teach. He gets the floor and he tells parables, which are the, his teaching stories. And I, I'm not going to spend much time here because they basically mostly have the same point. I'll give you one example. He, he tells a parable about a king who gives his servants money and trusts them to do something with it. And two of his servants did something with it. And then there's one who just complained and he played defense and he hid money in the ground and was just like, no, I can't please this king. And the king comes back and is furious with this guy because the guy wasted his investment by hiding it in the ground. Now, you hear what Jesus is saying. This would have been uh, would have been understood by most of the people around. This was a pretty obvious indictment of the establishment that they're wasting what they believed God had entrusted them with. Like they're supposed to be a light to the world. And at one point, Jesus even says, the Gentiles are getting into God's kingdom and you're not. That means the outsiders, the the ethnos, the other nations, the non-church people that have no religious label whatsoever, like they fit in this kingdom. Now you could see how this would make the inside people upset, right? So still, He's continuing to, as he teaches, polarize everyone around him and, and denounce the religious establishment. And it says that they are looking for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid because of the crowd. Jesus was brilliant. Now, at this point, he's getting more and more polarizing. And the third thing happens after the big question and after the parables. They come all of the, it comes all of these political either or questions from all of these groups. It's sort of like uh, Jesus had the stage and now it's Q&A time. And so all of these groups want to ask him a question now about some hot button issue of the day for them. Like if you're really the Messiah and we're starting to take you seriously as a candidate now, what do you say about this issue? It's almost like they couldn't get the crowd against him and so maybe now they can just get him to say some unpopular wrong answers and sway the vote in their direction. And the questions are kind of funny. It's like A versus B questions. 
Jesus, which one is right? And the only answers that they think that are out there are their canned answers, as if Jesus is going to pick A or B. Like there's only two answers, and you got to choose one out of our tribal mindset. We can't see outside of our box. Totally unlike today, right? And so uh, a good example of one of these questions they asked him, and they asked him several, uh, they asked him a question about taxes. Really hot button issue. Do we pay Roman taxes or not? Do you side with the Herodians that are here who say yes, or some of the Pharisees here who say no? And it's like Jesus has two choices, but Jesus never picks one of the two choices, hardly. Jesus says, give me a coin. Whose picture is on this coin? Whose son of God inscription is on here? And they're like, well, Caesar, of course. And he's like, look, if Caesar wants to go dig some metal out of the ground, put a proud stamp of his face on it, let him have it. Who cares? It's not just that I don't care about taxes that much. I don't even care about money. You got the wrong guy. You see how, like, he doesn't ever fit with the A, B, canned answers because he is an elevation or an evolution in consciousness. He is seeing the larger picture in ways that they can't see it. So people keep coming. They go on with question after question. Uh, the Sadducees come with questions. The Herodians come with questions. The Pharisees come with questions. These are all parties in the day. And then the sub-parties of the Pharisees, the Hillelites and the Shamites, come to him with questions. And he manages to offend all of them at some point, which if you think about it, takes some skill. It's totally like Jesus. But he hears questions for a while. He continues to up the polarization, and he leaves people each time with no resolution but only rising tension. And finally, after all of this, if Jesus hasn't upset enough people, he begins to pronounce woes on people. Not a W-H-O-A, but a W-O-E, woe. It's like a condemnation and grief all wrapped up in one statement. It's just like basically saying, and I hate to use this phrase, but it's like saying, that's sad. He, he says seven times, okay, which was really important to them because it was like a complete number of times. Woe to you. Basically saying all seven times, he basically says, woe to you because you're paying attention to all of the wrong things that don't matter the externals. Like one of them, he says, you clean the outside of your cup and dish, but you don't clean the inside. You are like rotting on the inside and wicked, this whole establishment. You're forcing your stuff on other people. And he says, you travel over land and sea to win converts to your system. And when you do, you make them twice the sons of hell you are. Jesus is relentless. And he says his seven woes like a sign of complete destruction to them. And he says, because of you, this temple is going to be obliterated. It's going to fall, which for them would have signaled like an end of the world. And so they start to argue about that. And as I said, that very thing happened about 40 years later when the Romans sacked it. But this was the end of what Jesus had to do. Jesus on this day was relentless. He kept raising the tension more and more and polarizing the crowds and the religious elite. He displayed the idiocy and the futility of the system for the people who had eyes to see. Now, a lot of people didn't see it. In this system, of course, the temple didn't just automatically fall this week. But for his followers, this was the end. This was the end of holding up some duty-bound religious bureaucracy of works that's ruled by this nationalistic, misogynist power class. He, he stuck the dagger in, but not everybody recognized it. Only people with eyes to see saw it. 
which is what he's been saying the whole time, that you'll only see this kingdom if you have eyes to see it. But the people who did, they would take their own exodus from the system and find freedom, and the system would eventually shrivel up and die like the fig tree. At this point, like after all of the question, it's like he's done. It's like Jesus' work here is done. This is what he came for. Dying on the cross is like is an inevitable reality that had to be done, and I'll talk about that on Friday. They would put a nail in the coffin, but but from here on, Jesus knows that he's been seen. He has said his piece. He sort of drops the mic. He lets the world react how he knows that they will. And where does he go? On this Tuesday night, he goes out back to Bethany to celebrate with his friends.